This podcast provides a platform to discuss important questions and complex issues, challenge the status quo, and confront the boundaries of the establishment. I'm retired police chief Daniel Hahn. I went from being arrested at 16 to serving over 34 years in law enforcement. My goal is to keep you informed with news not being reported, voices not being heard, and the untold history of how we got here so that we can create a way forward. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Ollie Mack to a Way Forward podcast. And uh, Dr. Mack received a Bachelor of Science degree in Business Administration from Millican University, a Juris Doctorate from the University of Missouri School of Law, and a Medical Doctorate from Drexel University College of Medicine with a specialty in psychiatry. Dr. Mack was, has devoted over 50 years to working with individuals and organizations to promote humanity's welfare. And Dr. Mack is the president of Mack and Associates, a medical and legal consulting firm, and is the poll mark of the Kappas in Roseville. I can't leave, can't leave that off. Um, so welcome to the show, Dr. Mack. Thank you so much for having it. It's an honor to be here. So love to start with where you grew up. I know you uh, grew up in Kenlock in Missouri, which is somewhat close to Ferguson. Uh, if you could tell us about Kenlock and, and where you grew up, and eventually I want to ask you about uh, the transformation of Ferguson, but first maybe where you grew up and, and what what is significant about Kenlock? Well, I was born and raised in Kenlock, and Kenlock uh, is a small town about 25 miles, small city actually, about 25 miles west of the city of St. Louis. And uh, Kenlock was incorporated as a city in 1948 as an all-Black community. At that time, Kenlock was bounded, was landlocked uh, on all four sides, on one side by the Lambert Municipal Airport, on one side by a city of uh, Berkeley, Missouri, on the other side by a city, Coo Valley, Missouri, and right in the middle, they were landlocked by Ferguson, Missouri. And Kenlock basically served as a employment source for the white communities that surrounded us, except for Lambert Airport. They still weren't hiring blacks at that time. But the, the cities of Coo Valley, Berkeley, and Ferguson employed blacks to basically be domestic help. And at that time, there were still farms in that area, and the Blacks basically worked on the farm. And Kenlock was allowed to incorporate because the other cities around it were basically segregated, and Blacks couldn't live there, but they needed the help. So they allowed the city of Kenlock to incorporate as the first all-Black city in the state of Missouri in 1948. And it was a pretty good relationship as far as the white folks were concerned because they had an, un, an unlimited source of uh, employment. And because it was landlocked, uh, the people that lived there basically only had a job either in one of those three cities. And the relationship was such that uh, the only road in and out of Kenlock was through Ferguson. And at that time, we knew that uh, you had to be back in Canlock before sunset because to come through Ferguson after the sun was down was just asking for trouble. Like what would 
what what were people fearful of that would happen if they were in Ferguson, which, if I understand correctly, was an all white community at the time, after dark? What would what was the fear that would happen? Well, basically, what would happen would be they would uh, the police would pull you over, and uh, basically you would be lucky if they just questioned you where you were going. If they felt that you were just in Kenlock and you were out late, then they'd give you a ticket for being what they call trespassing after dark. And they'd give you a ticket if you were lucky. If you were not lucky, you were usually subject to physical abuse and put in jail and then had to pay a hefty fine to get out. And if you didn't pay the fine and get out, then the people that you worked for in either Ferguson or Cool Valley or Berkeley would know about it and you would lose your job. So they made it such that if you weren't in, in Kenlock by nightfall, there were consequences. And what would you say roughly, maybe you don't remember exactly, but like what time period did that, was that still going on? That went on from when the city, was even before the city was incorporated, when it was just a town, it was founded as a town and actually in 1890. Um, and that would, and then it became predominantly black in the uh, early 1920s uh, because one of the white Kenlock was initially all white, with a small portion of black people who served as servants. And while it was majority white, there were restrictions in deeds that black people could not own any more land than they already owned. But then in 19 about 1930, one of the white owners sold land to black people in the white only area that caused the white flight and then at that time as white people moved out more black people moved in until they had enough to become incorporated in 1948 it went on that way until segregation was banned in the city of st louis once segregation was outlawed in the city of st louis blacks could live in the city of st louis and about and what that, year was that that was approximately 1952. So not that long ago. Not that long ago. <laughs> and once Black people could live in the city of St. Louis, they were no longer confined to living in the city of Kinloch. And it wasn't all of a sudden, even though they passed the law in 1952, right. there were still deed restrictions in most of the land uh, that was owned that prohibited that property from being sold to Negroes at that time. Right. So even right. though segregation was disbanded, integration still was not fully accepted. And it happened over a period of years that eventually uh, people were able to move more and more away from Kenlock. And certainly uh, with young people who had been born in Kenlock, they wanted to get outside those boundaries and explore new, new areas. And as that process began to grow, that's when the relationships began to change between Kenlock and the surrounding communities. Uh, well, I ask you about uh, Ferguson. I remember Brother Morell uh, told me a story years ago that he had lived for a short time in Ferguson. And back in the day when he lived there, it was a predominantly white community, as you just described. And But by the time Michael Brown, who was shot by uh, the police department there, uh, by the time that happened, it was a predominantly black town with a predominantly white leadership. Uh, on the council. So I think it's a similar story that happened in many cities across this country, probably around that same time. 
So as someone that's from there, maybe uh, uh, could you describe the transformation of Ferguson and probably other cities in that area and the challenge that comes with that, that I think we saw play out a lot of times on our screens when Michael Brown was shot in the aftermath of that. Well, what happened was again, um, as uh, segregation was was being slowly working its way out and integration um, started becoming more and more uh, allowable, uh, once again, as Black people began to move into Ferguson, um, it was predominantly white. And once again, they allowed a few folks in because they were basically domestic servants and uh, providing other type of labor support to, to the area. But as more and more Blacks moved into the city of Ferguson, more and more white people left until the uh, till the balance started to shift where there became more Black people than white people. But even though the physical numbers were there, there were still very severe and restrictive voting laws. So even though Blacks lived in the city of Ferguson, they were still primarily denied the right to vote and the few people that could vote were still the minority compared to the white people. And so as it transitioned, white people continued to vote white people to be in power. And then what began to happen was, um, as the white people moved out and the property values became more depressed because of the redlining, the city was beginning to not generate as much money from taxes. And so it began to evolve that the city of Ferguson made, I won't say conscious, but an action decision that they would use the Black people as sources of income to fund the city. So you always had instances of Blacks being arrested, Blacks being given traffic tickets, Blacks being basically fined for things that went on too much garbage in your front yard, an abandoned car parked in your driveway. And they began to use those sources of income to basically fill the city coffers. And so it became still an environment where you knew if you were stopped by the police, you were not going to leave without giving something up out of your pocket. And it became also that you could also slip the police officer five or ten dollars and maybe he wouldn't write you a ticket. Hmm. But bottom line was Black people became the coffers for the city of Ferguson. Wow. So uh, as the poll mark of Kappa Alpha Psi in, in Roseville, um, I know uh, the Kappas do a lot of work in schools, obviously colleges, but also in the community. So um, what would you say to people that don't know much about fraternities, what is the, in your opinion, what is the opinion uh, or what is your opinion on the value uh, of fraternities, both at the college level, but also in the community? I think, I think at both levels, what, what you find is that your action speaks louder than your words. And we as Kappa men have decided that rather than going out and telling who we are and telling what we do, we do what we do. And then people will ask, well, who are those guys? And then we let them know that we are Kappa men. And so we feel that by taking this approach, both on the college campus and in the community, 
that our work speaks louder for us than anything we could say or do. And so we make an extra effort to make sure that we are present in the community, that we are active as far as the politics and the economics of a community. And we support the people in the community who need support, whether they're getting it from the community or not. And we find that by doing that, more people know who we are. And then that in turn inspires other young black men to say, I wanna be able to live like that and be able to make that type of contribution to my community. And so we feel that by doing what we do, we're doing the best that we can to not only uh, set an example, but to also be there to support communities and individuals within communities. Yeah, uh, you know, at, at, as a police chief, uh, back in the day when I was a police chief, you know, we had, a tragic shooting in our city that became very controversial and led to protests, led to the only time an NBA game has ever been blocked in the history of the NBA. And it was also a time when uh, there was a lot of division within our community and every community across the country, uh, specifically around law enforcement. And defund law enforcement, um, reduce uh, funding and staffing for law enforcement. And at that time, uh, I had asked you and uh, Kappas and other fraternities and sororities to stand with me and others at a press conference, not because you believe that what the police department did was right in that shooting, but to call for peaceful protests and for people to express themselves, but not uh, conduct themselves like we saw in other cities in terms of burning cities down and things like that. And I was very thankful that the Kappas did that. So with that in mind, um, what do you feel with somebody with your experience, both personal and professional, is needed to bridge some of this large trust divide in certain segments of the community between law enforcement and the community because cities such as Sacramento do surveys and you'll have one neighborhood within that same city that has a extremely high level of trust and then another neighborhood within that same city that has an extremely low level of trust that's usually an impoverished community, a very diverse minority community. So as somebody with your experience and knowledge, what do you think is needed to help um, build trust in communities that have longstanding mistrust? I think that when you when you when you look at mistrust, particularly in in in, in neighborhoods that are poor, and and understand that it's not necessarily necessarily black communities. Um, there are white communities that are poor that have that same mistrust. Right of the police. And that mistrust comes because the individual police officers that interact with the various neighborhoods are basically the whole police force as far as that community is concerned, even though it may be only a small percentage of the officers in the, in the uh, total police force. But as far as that community is concerned, this is the police force of the city in which I live. And so if those individuals 
conduct themselves in a manner that is less than honest and forthright. Uh, the motto is to protect and serve. When they conduct themselves in manners that are not consistent with that, the community, as far as they know, this is the police force and how they see me. And so that mistrust begins to develop. And then the more the mistrust begins to develop, the more it justifies to the police officers that the method of their intervention is needed in order to one, protect themselves, but also to respond to the fact that people in the community are going to say, you're not doing your job, things are getting out of hand. And then, so you have two segments of the community that basically are butting heads as far as their perception of the police are concerned. In my opinion, there are two things, there are two, both sides need to do some work in in order to bridge this this mount this gap of mistrust i think that there has to be more exposure in the communities of the total police department of the things that they do that are positive in the community and i do know that when when you were chief in both roseville and the chief in sacramento you really strive to have your officers interact with the community in ways that supported community activities and supported community children and showed that side of the police that they are there to protect and serve. And I think that that's a key component that the police department can do in order to, to make a movement toward that, that gap of mistrust. On the other hand, I think that uh, individuals and in, in the people in the community need to be educated so that they see that the de police department is not just the people that they see and the people they feel don't represent the police department. They need to see that the officers that do that are a small percentage of the total police department so that they still have faith that the bulk of the police department is there to protect and serve. So I think if both parties kind of take some steps forward from their initial positions, that there can be some meeting at the mines, which hopefully will be at that point where you've bridged that gap of mistrust between the police and the community. Well, and as we heard from you a little bit ago, you grew up in a time and in some communities that had hopefully are a little different than today. Um, but, you know, I often hear people say when it comes to police activity, well, if they had just done what the cops said, this wouldn't have happened. If they'd just comply, um, then that wouldn't happen. So it's on them that, you know, whatever occurred between them and the officer. So what what do you say to people that say that? Like, you know, the cop, if you had just done what the cop said, you wouldn't be in this predicament. I think that those are people that that probably have not had the unfortunate experience of meeting an officer. Let's just say, like the gentlemen, like like the officers that that were involved with the um, the incident in Memphis, Tennessee. Right. Um, when you meet that type of officer, you, there is really nothing you can do to comply, and under that circumstance which is unusual. And that's the thing that makes it difficult for a, a person who hasn't been exposed to that to understand 
is that even though it is unusual, it does occur. And most of the time, when you comply with an officer's request, you don't have any trouble. If you comply and you are not hostile and you are not uh, responding in a negative way, most officers will reciprocate with that type of respect. However, there are some officers that do not respond to that and because they have other things motivating them, it escalates to a situation that unfortunately ends up being, you know, another situation that individuals and communities say, see, I told you. Um, <clears throat> but again, it's the, it's the times that you hear about the bad times that people again assume that's the majority of the officers. That's the way to put the police department treats us. And uh, that's unfortunate because, again, it's only one or two, or in this case, a small number of people from the entire police department. But sometimes compliance is not necessarily the solution. But unless you are aware of that, you don't necessarily say, you don't necessarily know that. And so to you, Compliance would avoid all of that situation, but some people are just not um, respectful of that type of, of that type of interaction. Yeah, it always amazes me that if somebody doesn't comply and they get shot, you some people feel like, well, that's okay, and I'm still always amazed, like okay, that might still be wrong not to do what you told them to do, but that still doesn't, that's not your justification for shooting somebody just simply because they didn't do what you said. So, uh, you know, you have a tremendous amount of experience in a lot of things, uh, for instance, the medical field. So it, it, when things like medical crises happen, for example, COVID, I would often hear that the that folks that were hardest hit by COVID um, were the African-American community, the Hispanic community. Um, so what do you, wh what is your, through your experience, what do you think is the relevance of that and what needs to be done that specific communities health-wise are more impacted uh, by these health crises or emergencies than others? Well, I think I think what I've primarily the main reason I think is that uh, is that minority communities, poor communities, again, uh, some of which are minorities, some of which are not minorities, um, just don't have access to health care. Um, the health care is usually not in their community. First of all, usually they have to travel outside of their community in order to even access health care, assuming they have the coverage that would allow them to do so. Uh, but another big factor is that most of them do not have the health coverage that allows them to be able to address some of the preliminary symptoms that something may be wrong, a shortness of breath, uh, a loss of memory. They will usually, instead of going to a doctor and having to pay a copay, they will usually just say, well, this will pass or um, I'll talk to my grandmother about what to do about this. So not having access to health care and not having the ability to access the health care that's available to you kind of forces folks to say, I'm going to have to take care of this myself. I think that that's partly feeds into the overall 
reason why you have such a poor um, uh, health situation in, in underserved neighborhoods. Uh, I think also one of the things is that um, I found that when many minority people go to visit doctors, their symptoms are downplayed, that they're not given the seriousness from of the medical system, the medical professional. Mm -hmm. um, there, there's a there's a there's a a kind of a myth among doctors that I heard that I was exposed to that somehow they believe that black people have a more to high tolerance for pain than white people. And so they feel much more comfortable saying, well, you just stuffed tough this out. This will make it uh, better um, if you just uh, don't do anything except rest. And so I think that a lot of medical, there's a lot of myths about how to treat minorities within the medical profession itself. And I think that as we get more and more minority doctors into the field, that's beginning to, to dissipate a little bit more, but you still have generations of doctors who were, who were trained with that kind of unconscious philosophy in mind, mm -hmm. such that uh, Black people, and in particular Black women, when they go in to see a medical physician are often just kind of ignored and told that, uh, and this too shall pass. So I think that those, those are the main components that feed into it. I think another component that's kind of unspoken is that um, Black people have an untrust of the medical profession based upon the fact that they've heard things like the Tuskegee experiment. Um, and in their minds, the medical profession is still kind of using them as guinea pigs. And real quick, what was the Tuskegee experiment for those that don't know? The Tuskegee experiment was an experiment performed in the 1940s uh, in Tuskegee, Alabama, where the U.S. Department of Health wanted to know the long-term effects of syphilis in men. And so what they did was there were men that would go to the uh, medical facility to be treated for syphilis. And they basically treated some of the men and did not treat the other men, other men but they didn't tell the patients, which ones were treated and which ones weren't. As a matter of fact, they didn't even know they were part of an experiment. And so what happened was they monitored these Black men as they went through, and those that didn't have syphilis and got treated, their progress was monitored. And those that, I mean, those that had syphilis and were treated, their progress was monitored. And those that were left without treatment, their progress was monitored. And of course, the ultimate result of not treating syphilis is a very long and suffering uh, right. environment that ultimately results in death. And so when it came out that the Tuskegee experiment was going on, operated by the government without the knowledge of the Black people, it immediately, much like with the police, formed this mindset that we cannot trust the government to treat us well when it comes to physical health. And so that was part of what happened with the pandemic. And when people, when they released the vaccine, once again, the memory of the Tuskegee experiment rose up in Black people. Even though they weren't around, right. they heard of the, the experiment. And this was a whole new generation. And they basically decided to adopt that philosophy that this is basically an experiment. And we don't want to be part of the experiment, so we're not going to take the vaccine. 
And as a result, um, we were very minority and poor communities were very hit, hard hit with the with the COVID virus and the deaths that resulted. And again, this also went across uh, poor white communities as well, who've generally had bad experiences with the health profession. But minorities in particular, both blacks and Hispanics, uh, based upon you know that that mindset of not wanting to be guinea pigs, and two, based upon the mindset that the history of their involvement with the health profession was not a favorable and positive one, that mistrust fed into their rejection of the uh, vaccine and feeds into their rejection of the medical system is really here to help me. They feel as if the medical system is really here to get as much money from me as they can and if I live, that's fine. If I don't, that's fine, too, as far as the system is concerned. Interesting. You know, earlier you said um, not just the minority communities, but poor white communities or poor communities in general um, uh, have lack of access to the medical um, uh, services. And sometimes, in some cases, some medical professionals um, don't provide the same service. So why should we care as a society at large about that? Why, why, why not? Um, why, why shouldn't we just say, or maybe we should, hey, that's your problem. Get a better job with better health coverage. Move to a place that has medical coverage. That's on you. Why should we as a society care at all whether you have gone about obtaining medical services or living in an area that has the appropriate medical services? I think that it's easy to, to take that attitude because that's, that's the world we live in. Um, it's the world we've always lived in, as a matter of fact, that, um, you know, this is the dog eat dog world and you have to take care of you. And if you don't, then that's on you. But I think that the reason why that is not a very viable position to take is because we're all interconnected in this society, whether we want to be or not. And in, and despite what people think, a society is ultimately judged by the way they treat the least amongst them. That's what really determines your merits as a society because you're always going to have poor people. You're always going to have people in need. That's That's been around since we've started living in societies, that there's been that separation between the haves and the have-nots. But a society is usually not judged based upon how good did the really fortunate and the really educated and the really economically privileged people live. Society is judged by what did they do when it came to treating those that didn't have those type of resources? How did you treat your poor? And this country was putting forth the image of, give me your poor, your tired, and your hungry, with the illusion that when you come here, we're going to take you in our arms and do what we can to improve your, your lot in life. And unfortunately, that has not played out because that's a philosophy, and philosophy means nothing unless the people live out the attributes of that philosophy. And so um, we should care because we will be judged on how we treat those 
that are less fortunate than those that have. All right, last question I have for you. Uh, as Polmark, <laughs> if somebody, regardless of where they live, um, had a child prior to college, right, in high school or middle school age, or you're a young person getting ready to go to college, and they are interested in e either being a Kappa leaguer or or joining the fraternity in college, uh, how how would how would you say they should go about that? I would say that you have to look at two things because when you when you join a fraternity when you're in college, fraternities are are composed on college campuses, usually of sophomores, juniors, and seniors. So these are going to be individuals who are anywhere from 18 to 20, 21 years old. And when you're that age, you don't see life the same way as someone <laughs> who's old. And so when you join a fraternity in college, I think it's important to look at what are they doing outside of the fraternity social activities. Um, when you're at the college level, we all hear stories about fraternities and sororities and the parties and the, the types of activities that go on there. And that's true at that level in the sense that you do have that type because that's the way young people at that age, that's their, that's their goal in life is to have a good time. <laughs> and so you want to join a fraternity or sorority, and usually your choices are limited to those that are on your campus. Right. Um, I've been on some campuses that don't have all of the fraternities or all the sororities. And if you want to join one, you kind of have to join the one that's on your on your campus. So that dictates for a lot of people which fraternity or sorority that they become engaged in. But then after you graduate, all fraternities have what they call alumni chapters. That are those chapters that exist for members who have graduated uh, from the college or we also take in individuals who have graduated from college but didn't have the opportunity to pledge when they were in undergraduate school. And then I think that it's a different thing because you're no longer looking at the social aspect as being the primary reason for joining a fraternity or a sorority. I think in alumni chapter, what you wanna look at to me are, are two basic things. One, what are they doing to help the community? What are they doing to take what they've learned in college and the successes that they've had in, in their relative professions of law, medicine, law enforcement? What are they doing in those areas to take those talents and skills to go back and help people in the community that aren't as fortunate as they? And I think the second thing you wanna look at in looking at an alumni organization is what are they doing to help train young people? What are they doing to pass on the lessons that they have learned coming through college and coming through the work field and working themselves up to the point where they're successful in their relative fields of endeavor? What can you share with young people that will allow them to be successful without having to make all of the mistakes and learn all of the lessons from life that we had to learn? So I think those two things should really dictate what an individual looks at if they want to join a fraternity or sorority after they've graduated from college. And now they're an adult and relatively successful in whatever their field of achievement is. 
Well, I can't thank you enough, Dr. Mack, for joining us today on a Way Forward podcast. I appreciate your knowledge and your uh, insight to uh, basically how we've got to where we're at today. So I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. One of the big purposes of a way forward is to hear different voices and different opinions, because that is how we can make informed decisions ourselves. So if you are someone that would like to come on a way forward to express your opinion, go to chiefhan.com forward slash podcast. Chief, H-A-H-N dot com forward slash podcast.